Well, hello again, friends, and welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, we are finishing up on the uh, sixth and seventh dwellings in St. Teresa of Avila's interior castles. We've been doing this series now, uh, Francis, for a number of weeks, uh, and looking forward to uh, to hearing what Teresa has to teach us in the seventh dwelling. That's the important dwelling, I think, at least that one <laughs> that we're most uh, anxious to uh, arrive at. Uh, but let me begin, actually, by saying hello, Francis. Welcome back to our conversation. Thank you, Mark. It's such a joy to be back with you and to have these com- uh, these Carmelite conversations. And I hope our viewers, our, our listeners, uh, actually are with us and enjoying it as well. You know, I want to stress the importance of something uh, Francis and I were talking about before the program began. We have uh, spent a number of weeks now speaking about Carmelite topics in these conversations. We've interviewed a number of guests. We've gone through a number of texts, most especially Teresa of Avila. She is, after all, the mother of our order, the foundress of the of the Carmelite uh, uh, order, the Reformed Carmelite order, the secular, um, a- as well as the um, the um, actual religious. Uh, and we draw so much rich history uh, from what she has to teach us, but I want to reemphasize the importance and the application of everything that she has to teach us to our spirituality today and how I, I, I think Carmelite spirituality, this blending of the apostolic with the contemplative, is an important message for every Catholic today, Francis, I think, uh, it's something the church needs to uh, needs to uh, uh, evangelize more more actively. And one of the resounding things she says is, "Prayer should lead to good works." Prayer should lead to good works. We have to blend the two. In fact, we're going to hear uh, today about the blending of the uh, elements of Martha and Mary in each of us as an individual person, and the importance of that uh, combining. For so many years now, there's been debate and. Uh, theological uh, uh, discussion over, um, uh, you know, this uh, story from the Gospels where Christ is uh, talking and Mary's listening and Martha, of course, is being very active, and uh, this debate about which of the two roles is more important. And we learn through uh, Mother Teresa that, in fact, our Mother Teresa, Teresa of Avila, that, in fact, it's a combination of the two that's necessary. That's really the theme for this evening's uh, discussion. But before we begin our a conversation. Francis, would you mind leading us in prayer, please? Yes, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And this comes from Teresa's own words in chapter 6 of the sixth dwelling place of Interior Castle. Oh, poor little butterfly, bound with so many chains, which do not let you fly where you would like. Have pity on it, my God. Ordain that it might somehow Fulfill its desires for your honor and glory. Do not be mindful of the little it deserves and of its lowly nature. You have the power, Lord, to make the great sea and the large river Jordan roll back and allow the children of Israel to pass. Yet you do not take pity on this little butterfly. Helped by your strength, it can suffer many trials. It is determined to do so and desires to suffer them. Extend your powerful arm, Lord, that this soul might not spend its life in things so base. Let your grandeur appear in a creature so feminine and lowly, whatever the cost to her, so that the world may know that this grandeur is not hers at all and may praise you. 
This praise is what she desires, and she would give a thousand lives if she had that many, if one soul were to praise you a little more through her, and she would consider such lives very well spent. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for those words. Thank you, Mother Teresa, for those words. Well, we picked up, uh, or we are going to pick up, Francis, this week on um, a, a very important part of the sixth dwelling, and I want to spend just a few moments sort of setting the table and talking about this. One of the issues that we talked about, uh, it was actually two weeks ago, because I believe last week we had a break in the uh, in the normal sequence of events, but we had finished off with a discussion about the flight of spirit. There are a number of phenomenon, spiritual phenomenon, that occur in the latter parts of these dwellings. But one thing Teresa continues to emphasize is the importance of dwelling on the humanity of Christ, the suffering Christ, but also the human... Uh, um, uh, person of Christ, uh, the, the, the person who we, like flesh and blood, can sort of get our hearts and our minds around and understand that he lived our human experience in, in much the same way that we do. Uh, and through that, he becomes for us an example of this path that Teresa is uh, mapping out for us as to how we grow in union with our Lord. And uh, we want to emphasize the importance of continuing to reflect on the humanity of our Lord, the sacrifice that he made, the passion, uh, the price that he paid, as we get into these uh, difficult times in our life, and certainly as we approach this sixth and the seventh dwelling, the trials will continue, the difficulties will continue, but the joy increases at the same time. And hopefully we are imitating our Lord as he goes through that passion, so might we. And so... Uh, Teresa emphasizes Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so the centrality of the humanity of Christ is important for every part of that spiritual journey. Every part of that journey, that's absolutely right. We sometimes can get lost in our prayer and begun, uh, begin to think uh, perhaps too intellectually or too spiritually, and we get lost with the simplicity that's necessary in our day-to-day prayer. And that simplicity begins certainly with the a focus on the person of Jesus Christ, and as St. Teresa is going to teach us here in a moment, also the saints and our Blessed Mother. Right, and she tells us, you know, we're not angels. We don't have angelic spirits. We're humans. And so we need to go by the way of our humanity, and Christ came in the human form with his divine nature. So we have the best of it all. Well, at this stage, in the seventh chapter, actually, in the sixth dwelling, not to confuse our listeners, but we are in the sixth dwelling of the seven dwellings. We just happen to be in the seventh chapter of that sixth dwelling. And she had uh, introduced this chapter by talking about how, at this stage of spiritual development, a person begins to get a real sense of their personal brokenness, their sinfulness. Uh, In other contexts, she uses the word wretchedness. Uh, This is a theme that we don't uh, often hear in in, uh, our Catholic circles, and of course it's not one that would want to be overemphasized, but for those who've matured some in their spiritual walk, we accept the reality that we as human beings are broken and we need reconciliation. But she cautions us here, and I'm going to read from the text, uh, for here the soul doesn't think about the suffering it will undergo. This is a suffering as account, uh, on account of the, uh, of the recognition of our sinful state, uh, on account of its sins, but on how ungrateful it has been to the one to whom it owes so much and who deserves so much to be served. This is the experience that we have at this stage of our development. We, we understand now our true condition. We begin to get 
uh, a deeper uh, picture of truth, our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who he really is, and unfortunately, in many respects, who we really are. And I want to point out, this is a very good discernment point, that if we aren't seeing ourselves growing in our um, knowledge of our self and our littleness and our misery and the awesomeness and greatness of God, then there's something missing. Yeah. And Teresa gives us, actually, uh, you were talking about um, a, a revelation, confirmation. You're going to talk, I know, this evening about uh, those elements of discernment. One of the keys she gives of discernment, and it's a bit shocking as some of the things that Teresa shares uh, sometimes are, she says, and I'm quoting again, I know a person, and again, let me say for our listeners, every time we hear Teresa saying, I know a person, we know she's talking about herself. I know a person who, apart from wanting to die in order to see God, wanted to die so as not to feel the continual pain of how ungrateful she had been to the one whom she ever owed so much and would owe. What a revelation. Our, our mother, uh, a saint and a doctor of the Church, uh, can express, even as late as this sixth dwelling, this desire uh, to, as I said to you in a discussion earlier, give up the ghost, because she feels such remorse over the what she would characterize as the wasted days, the wasted hours of her life, her early life, not having adequately served him. And yet, her love for him carries through, and of course, she doesn't want to die. She wants to go on serving him as best she can. Whatever God wills, to exactly. live or to die. But yeah. she did write a poem about uh, to die of dying, or what was that? She had a poem about death. I'm dying because of death. Dying because I can't die, yeah. Actually, John of the Cross says exactly the yeah, same thing. Yeah, they both right. on the yeah. same thing. So, you know, that's an important one. And what a sign of her humility. And that's another dead giveaway about the authenticity of some of these supernatural um, events or favors that happen, is that it, there must be a great growth in humility. Yeah, and she says, uh, the next point she brings up is relief from this situation, which you express well, the dying to die. I, I just want to be relieved, not of the world and not of the difficulties of the world. In fact, as we'll hear in a moment, she accepts all of that. She embraces the difficulty in the trial. It becomes a means of manifesting the love that she now feels for uh, the Savior. What she, of course, is distraught over is her own wasted time and, and the, the wasted graces and and opportunities throughout her life to serve the Lord. This has now been revealed to her. And again, we're talking about a doctor of the Church, somebody who has made significant contribution throughout her life to the Church. But nonetheless, she feels such great remorse over what she didn't do that she wants to die. Her relief, ultimately, for that experience is not the realization that she's forgiven and that mercy will be accorded her and that she will be saved. But in fact, her relief is, I can continue to live and I can continue to serve the Lord. Right, because she wants the will of the Lord, and she's begging His mercy. And you know, this is so important um, because uh, the the soul needs a great deal of courage to go through a lot of this because you're you're knowing yourself so much more and you're afraid of the deceptions that can occur with all of this. So part of the reason of these favors is to help encourage us, to give us the strength to, to be like a signpost you know, to help us know that, you know, God is calling us and, and these favors will help us to, uh, or help him, will allow him to expand our soul to receive him 
and to grow in our love and capacity for Him. I want to remind our listeners, if you um, would like to become part of the conversation, if you have a comment, maybe a question, or a reflection on uh, an experience you may have had in any one of these stages of development throughout uh, the writings of Teresa, the uh, the Seven Dwellings. Well, following on with this, Francis, uh, Teresa gives us some other good counsel. She, of course, has said before, and will emphasize again, the need to continue to reflect on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ throughout this experience. But, you know, so often I get questions, I know you do, um, what is the role of Mary? What is the role of the saints? And this can come from Catholics, not just non-Catholics, who may be simply uh, uh, looking for an intellectual response, but Oftentimes our Catholic friends will say, uh, I don't understand the importance we place on Mary. I don't understand the significance in the, in the uh, role of the saints. Well, in fact, St. Teresa tells us here that the flesh and blood of our Blessed Mother, as well as the saints who lived this life, who lived this experiences, many of them lived through these very experiences, give us strength and courage, not only that they intercede for us, but we can read their lives and we can relate experiences in our own uh, trials and tribulations, whether we're reading about someone who was a father or someone who was a workman or a mother who raised children. We can relate to the experience and we can look at the example they set. In fact, that's the definition of a saint, someone who gave heroic witness in the midst of trials and tribulations and yet um, deepened that love for our Lord and Savior. Uh, they serve as great witnesses and great uh, sources of strength for us as we continue this journey. And when you look at Mary, we see how much she pondered the events of of Christ and her life and what was going on and pondered on Scripture, how much she prayed, how humble, how tender, how loving. And these are all guideposts to authenticity, this, this love and this humility. You know, we talked uh, again just before the program. There is something that Teresa emphasizes, and it's uh, for me, not surprising, but interesting, I think, and important. She emphasizes that we must take up this challenge in our prayer. Carmelites are noted for praying, of course, for priests. Uh, St. Uh, Therese of Lisieux had a great mission for priests, and in fact, for missionary priests. Uh, many Carmelites had a mission to pray for souls in purgatory. But Teresa's challenging us in a different way in this, uh, in this particular uh, dwelling and in later dwellings as well. She asks us to pray for a particular group of souls. Do you recall that? Yes, it's to pray for those souls in mortal sin. And why would that be, Mark? The power of intercessory prayer. We are members of the mystical body, and of course, none of us is saved alone. None of us is uh, uh, fighting this fight alone. We have the strength not only of the Blessed Mother and the saints that we just talked about, but each other to draw on as well. And in fact, um, as the scales begin to drift off in our own experience of the Lord, we just talked about the revelation and, and the coming to truth about our own condition and beginning to see ourselves in the light of uh, the greatness and the glory of God. The unfortunate reality is that for those who are mired in mortal sin, the scales are up and fully in place, and they're blinded. They're, yeah. they're absolutely blinded, yeah. and in many cases blinded to the point where they will not be able to find their way out of the darkness unless there's intercession on the part of uh, uh, other members of the body, most especially those who have begun to gain their sight and an understanding. And a shower of grace. You know, in this sixth mansion, uh, Teresa spends uh, a lot of time talking about all the favors or the supernatural events that may occur, like I said may, occurred, and she spent like 11 chapters on this, more than on any other dwelling place. 
And there's like three main categories. And, of course, I would highly suggest that you get the book and read it and, you know, uh, study it to get all these nuances and details. But there's three general categories. There's the locutions, which Mark is going to tell you about, what it is and, and the three kinds. And then there are the visions. And then there are like ecstasies or another name for it may be raptors or flight of spirit, and there are little um, differences between them. So we're just going to kind of uh, do a concentrated uh, definition of these and uh, a, a few highlights. Well, the Lord can work through our senses. He can work through our intellectual capacities, our reasoning abilities, uh, uh, through the, the, the physical senses. Um, and he can also, of course, work through the Spirit. We are spiritual beings, and the Lord can work with us in that way. These locutions that you refer to, of course, are uh, more of an intellectual nature. They require, of course, intellect combined with faith. you got to tell them what that locution is, though. What is a locution? I don't know. You might be, you might be <laughs> testing me beyond my reading. I'm going to turn that one well, back well, to you. Because we, we need to know that this is about words. Yes. Okay, rather than images. Right. You're right. It, it is an intellectual uh, experience of understanding a phrase. Uh, it, it may be a single word or it may be a sentence that gives guidance and direction. You're right. It's not a, uh, whether physical or an interior um, uh, revelation manifestation, it's not a pictorial experience. It is a, right. it is a word, if you will, an understanding, uh, which affects the intellect. And you can um, hear it outwardly mm-hmm. on the outside of your ears or... Inside your head. Or inside, but no less significant if you hear it inside. Uh, it's no less significant in terms of your ability to understand it. And it, it, on a deeper level, it can happen within your spirit in a sense that you have an understanding of it, but it, it's not like you heard it um, with your inner ear, so to speak. Right. And that is probably the most safe because, as she tells us, the more interior these favors, the less chance for deception. Right. In fact, uh, just stepping back for one second, we remember back in the fifth dwelling now, things had begun to happen uh, where we felt disconnected. We felt somewhat blinded. We felt like we were in the dark. Although we knew the Lord was still working in us, this is a very advanced uh, uh, spiritual state, and we we ought to... Uh, make sure to emphasize this comes in many cases, in fairness, and in many cases after uh, perhaps years of prayer, having gone through a, a series of trials and uh, perhaps setbacks both in our material life and in our spiritual life. Uh, but in that stage, elements of our um, uh, senses, uh, uh, individual senses, are blinded in such a way that we are protected by the work the Lord is doing so that Satan can't get in and mix things up, and she's very explicit about the work that the devil is trying to do in those stages. Here, um, we begin now in this sixth dwelling, we begin to have certitude that, in fact, the Lord is working with us. The visions now that we'll talk about, beyond the locutions, um, the visions we'll talk about have a certitude that comes along with them that even if Satan tried to get in, he couldn't intervene in this because both the experience itself, which brings peace and joy, confirmation, uh, in some cases consolation, uh, that the Lord himself is working in us, keep any chance of uh, intervention on the part of Satan out of the equation here, if you will. Right. And to um, point out how you know whether these words that you hear, these locutions, are from the Lord, 
there's three really good ones. I mean, she lists very many of them, but we're going to give you real, three really good ones. Uh, one of the surest signs of their authenticity that they come from the Lord is the power and authority of the words that um, are carried with them, you know, the power and the authority in the words. And then the second one would be the quiet and the peace and the recollection left within the soul and their desire to praise God as a result of it all. And the third one is that the clarity of the words, um, and that these words would remain in the memory for a long time, sometimes never forgotten. But the clarity is such that you, every time you remembered it, you remembered exactly word for word. And I know when we uh, read about um, some of the apparitions and experiences of like St. Bernadette, um, you might uh, see how she's able to remember word for word, like some of the secrets and how she wrote them down. So um, that's kind of a reference in, in our modern-day world of what that might be like. So now, as we go on, let's, uh, let's go to the vision part. Now, in the same way, we have, uh, you can see visions outwardly, and we would call that an apparition, okay? And sometimes the apparition is such that you can touch, and others not to touch, just a visual representation. Um, and that is, is, there's another discernment all in that. And then there is the what we call an imaginative vision, an image that's implanted in your mind. And then there's the intellectual vision, which is um, much more detailed. Uh, it's within the mind, uh, but not like an image that you can see with the eyes. But for some reason, they still call it an intellectual vision. Yeah, and the intellectual vision uh, stays with you. It is uh, an understanding. It is an awareness of the presence of God. You, again, it's combined with faith deep within the soul. Uh, and, and it is, as you say, as long as that presence is there, you know it. It's confirming, and you know that the Lord is uh, with you and he's working with you. The uh, imaginative vision, a better analogy is it. It's sort of like the flash of a camera Good. Uh, where an image is left. It is not the image itself. It is not the presence, if you will, of the person, but an image is left. And over time, of course, the, the clarity on the image begins to fade a little bit. And so um, the, the Lord sometimes will uh, uh, reinvigorate that with another imaginative vision. Uh, she does say that the imaginative vision, because there is more of a pictorial element to it, is an opportunity for Satan to get involved a little bit and and he can bring about confusion in the midst of it. Although um, she also says that there will be, when it is the Lord, there will be a certitude about the fact that the Lord has, in fact, intervened here. Right, but the the soul coming out of it may still have some kind of confusion about it, um, but yet there's that certitude. So, so it's a little uh, um, hard for us to understand without reading the whole text, so I would suggest that. Um, very important, though, is to... Um, remember that these are all ways in which God is trying to um, help you grow in love and humility. We've got to keep remembering that. Yeah, I also want to emphasize a series of things that she provides us as uh, counsel. These are not the guideposts now. These are counsel as regards these experiences themselves. First of all, as we did say this, I know, a couple weeks ago, seek good spiritual direction if you can find it. That's important. Um, but these things uh, should never be sought, and the reason, she says, that they should not be sought is to do so would be a lack of humility. You give yourself over to the possibility of deception by the devil. The imagination can easily lead you astray when you are pursuing them. 
Leave it to the Lord, she says, to pursue you. Trials are greater on this path, so uh, it isn't necessarily something you may desire at the end of the day. And you might lose rather than gain faith because you may become dependent on the event uh, to support your faith. Well, that's all good counsel from our mother, and we're going to come back with some other good guidance and direction from St. Teresa, the mother of the Carmelite Order, uh, right after this break. Please return. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, Thank you for rejoining us here at Carmelite Conversations. Well, we're about ready to leave the sixth dwelling, Francis, but before we do that, I know you have a few things you want to say about other uh, spiritual phenomena. We don't want to leave our listeners hanging. Uh, Again, I I want to emphasize, Francis and I talked about this before the program briefly, but uh, I think it's important that we, we try to understand what it is that leads us into these different dwellings, into these experiences with the Lord, what helps us to deepen our relationship. I think it's important enough that we know that there is an opportunity to deepen our experience of the Lord in this life. We are not here simply to uh, conduct periodic prayer with the Lord and and sort of drift along in our life in hopes that someday when we pass over, uh, we'll be given entry. The reality is that we can begin, and we'll talk about this as the seventh dwelling in much the way that uh, St. Teresa does, we can begin to experience uh, fragments of heaven even while here on earth. We can deepen that relationship with our Lord and Savior. And in doing so, we have to discern what is happening to us in that relationship because we must also acknowledge that there is an enemy who would like to keep us from experiencing this deeper relationship, this deeper intimacy. 
and he will try to involve himself in certain ways, and so we have to discern. Uh, we will have spiritual phenomenon in these stages of development, and Francis talked to us a little bit about some of those potential phenomenon and, and what we would uh, use as means of discerning what's exactly happening. Okay, so we, we've mentioned locutions, which are the words or phrases, and then we've talked about the visions, what the images that one might see, and now when we go into ecstasy or raptures or flights of the spirit, um, all of these, uh, sometimes they f- seem like they're interchanged when Teresa writes of them, um, and yet uh, when the theologians study all this, they have certain uh, descriptions for each one. But in essence, an ecstasy is much like one going out of one's senses, both the outward senses of uh, seeing, hearing, feeling, and the, inter- the inner senses of the intellect, the memory, and the will. So you're, you're taken out of all that. So you're not thinking for yourself. You're not seeing with your eyes. You're not hearing. You're not feeling. You're not uh, composing thoughts in your mind. So in this ecstasy, you're taken out of yourself, and it may display in the body by the body being rigid or cold or hardly breathing, um, with a person maybe not speaking at all. Um, and it could last a short while, usually, um, it's a short while, and but it results... C- certainly less than 30 minutes, right? She says yes. this would never last more than 30 minutes. Right. Um, and it results in greater detachment and intensifying desires for God, uh, desiring for penance. Um, they, they may feel pain and embarrassment um, on these phenomena happening around other people, but there's much interior light given here, and uh, it, it seems that you know, God is revealing himself more and more. And it, it's a sense of going, withdrawing within to a deeper place. And this rapture is, is like an elevation of the spirit going out, um, drawing it out of the senses. And even though you're not in prayer, um, it could be uh, as simple as being touched by a word that you hear. And all of a sudden this word has great um, meaning to you, uh, thoughts about this word that you've never had before that in- increase your understanding and your love is increased. Um, it could be that there's some kind of heavenly secret uh, given in this kind of a rapture, or you might have these intellectual or imaginative visions, and these can be um, last a little longer, and-, and yet somebody observing somebody in this state would think, well, you know, they they could have been fainted or they're just, some might even think they're in a, like an epileptic seizure state because, you know, they're rigid and they're not moving. They're, they're still, and, and they seem to be enthralled in something. And I remember the story about St. Bernadette. They, uh, when she was in this ecstasy or rapture, uh, they put a candle underneath her hand and the flame was burning. You could see it in the video footage. And yet she had no reaction to it. And upon coming out of this, she had no burn mark on her hand. So um, this phenomena does happen. And isn't it wonderful that Teresa talks about these things so that we know that these things can actually happen and that God does really want to come and communicate with us and work in us. And so it gives us hope that, you know, no, God didn't just create us and, and put us on the earth and then go away and say, you know, figure it out. No, he's very much involved with us, and on a personal level. And for whatever reason, he knows why, 
uh, some people are going to have some of these experiences. And then this flight of the spirit is even more of like taken out of yourself, like sort of like the story of St. Paul being uh, wrapped up into the third heaven, going to a different region without, out of oneself into a place they've never been. It's irresistible. You can't make it happen. You can't stop it. You don't have a sense of, of your body or your, your senses at all. And um, you learn so much, and they leave such good effects. And, and that is the thing that we want to see, is that we want to see this, uh, the effects of increased love, of not wanting to offend God, of being self-forgetful, of, of having little esteem for self, of being unattached to created things, and you know, longing to see God and to serve God and to do whatever it is to serve Him. So it's not a matter of getting to heaven. It's a matter of doing His will and pleasing God, which St. Therese, the little flower, was so good. Right. In fact, she says uh, that we shouldn't presume. She, she actually is giving this guidance to prioresses and spiritual directors, and she says we shouldn't presume that people who are having these experiences are somehow holier than others who may not be. Right, because uh, they may be very weak. They, they may be weak, and it, it is simply the path that the Lord has chosen to bring them along. What we have to keep in mind here. Uh, is that the Lord has a unique path for each of us. Ultimately, our destination, uh, of course, is with Him in eternity, in union. Uh, but the path that He draws us to is representative of our uniqueness as human beings. And, and so often I think we, we hear about somebody having a particular experience or uh, somebody appears to be making progress in their prayer life or they're manifesting uh, particular charisms or gifts. And we may desire those things. We just covered a whole litany of things. Teresa tells us not to uh, have admiration for or desire for uh, these particular experiences uh, because they can also lead you down the wrong path. But we shouldn't presume that because an individual is having those experiences, it necessarily makes them holier. It's simply the way that the Lord has chosen to work with them. Now, not to minimize the significance, if you are having these experiences, Clearly, you've laid the groundwork, you've prepared yourself, you've disposed yourself in such a way that the Lord is able to begin to do this interior work within you. Um, it's simply uh, a caution on her part to uh, each of us to make sure that we don't go seeking these things. We don't desire them uh, necessarily. What we desire is to be transformed into love. Right. And therefore, the most uh, definitive uh, confirmation that we can have that, in fact, we're moving along this path is we're loving deeper, we're caring more, we're becoming more humble, and we're becoming more selfless, less concerned about ourselves, even to the point, St. Teresa says, of not worrying about our ultimate destination. We become unconcerned about uh, where we'll rest in heaven and how our glory will be in heaven and all the rest of it. We're only concerned about the glory of the Lord. Very good point. And so, you know, John of the Cross, to help us. He even says it, it would be good for us to reject all these things um, because, number one, the errors of the devil are avoided by rejecting them, and even though it might be from God, if it's rejected, the benefit has already happened the moment the thing, the right. event has occurred. So the benefit is already there. So um, the other thing is he also says, you know, go to com- to your confessor, to your spiritual director, Get counseling on this. Be very fr- if you're doing front. self-analysis here, you're you're on the slippery slope here. Yeah. And if you if you have these experiences, and all of a sudden you think you're a little bit holier than somebody else, that's a dead giveaway. You're on the wrong place, and you better get help. Yeah, you you have probably been deceived. 
Um, and John's careful. He doesn't necessarily say that we should cast these things aside. He simply says, move on. Yeah. It's happened, and as you said, Francis, the effect has already occurred. You don't need to dwell on it. You never need to try to recreate it. Absolutely. Uh, you simply need to move on. Yeah, so you're, by, when I say reject, it's, and he wrote reject, it's not to scorn them. Right. Like you said, to move on. Very good point. Well, let's move on into the seventh dwelling at this point, because this is where, uh, of course, uh, uh, we're all bound and we all uh, uh, desire uh, to be in intimacy with the Lord. And this is how we arrive at this spot, is this humility and practicing the commandments and seeking virtue. But Teresa says something happens here that's very uh, explicit, it's very definitive, it's a very secure event that will confirm for us that we've reached what she has characterized as this seventh dwelling. It is simply a step along the path, though, at a very high level. Uh, do you want to share with us uh, that particular event, Francis? Well, if I'm thinking what you're thinking, it's an intellectual vision of the Holy Trinity. It is, exactly. And let me, let me read her words here. I think it's important. God now desires to remove the scales from the soul's eye. We talked about this earlier. And let it see and understand, although in a stranger way, something of the favor he grants it. When the soul is brought into that dwelling place, the most blessed Trinity, all three persons, through an intellectual vision, is revealed to it through a certain representation of the truth. So this is very explicit. Teresa, in this case, uh, no wishy-washiness, no maybe this, maybe that, uh, no clouding of the language here. She's very clear. When you have reached this certain pinnacle, if you will, in your relationship with the Lord, uh, through trial, through humility, through the practice of the virtue, through penance, through uh, all the trials and tribulations, uh, at some stage, there's this very definitive revelation of the Trinity. Other saints, of course, have talked about this. Catherine of Siena had this experience and spoke very explicitly about it, uh, and have given us, many saints have given us great detail, but Teresa is very clear here. You will see the Trinity, you will understand the distinction of what we in our limited human intellect could never grasp with all of the theological uh, genius throughout the centuries. We've never quite been able to uh, grasp, understand, and articulate this mystery of the Trinity but in that moment, we will know it. Let, and, let, but we may not be able to explain it. <laughs> we won't be able to explain it, right. Let, let me uh, reiterate as well the, the importance of expanding our conversation and including others who may want to participate uh, here at one 6279 Again, that's one 6279 I know there are other Carmelites out there who... Uh, certainly read the text, many of whom have uh, perhaps had these experiences or have wrestled with the trials and the tribulations at these very uh, developed stages of intimacy with our Lord and Savior uh, and may uh, have better counsel and insight, Francis, to share with us certainly a broader perspective. And I'd like to say that in our contemporary world, some ways where we might see some of this supernatural phenomena playing out would be like in near-death experiences or being a witness to a death experience. We might see some of this play out at those times. Um, I, I'm thinking of that book that is on the bestseller list right now, Heaven is for Real. And, you know, if you have read that, many people are reading that right now, um, you might want to use some of these discernment uh, guides from Teresa's Interior Castle to help you have a more informed opinion about some of the experiences that you read about. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so often we read about these experiences, and the medical profession is beginning now to uh, 
be more forthcoming, I guess. The doctors who have come out and, and shared their own stories of bedside uh, experiences with people who are transitioning from this life to the next. Family members, of course, oftentimes in attendance are sharing uh, those experiences, and they seem consistent. If you look for the the uh, consistency in the theme of the discussions around Teresa that we've shared over the last many weeks, Francis, and, and those events, uh, there's no disconnect. There's no disconnect. And, and of course, uh, even in the midst of uh, uh, the lives of uh, people who are very prayerful, very spiritual, who are seeking the Lord, uh, they find this in their dreams at night. They find this in... Um, what in many cases we might characterize as strange phenomena, uh, but in fact we can we can uh, uh, find all of this written about not only in the Gospels, not only in Scripture, but now in the teachings of the great teachers, the doctors of the Church. Uh, that there's nothing to be feared here. There's nothing to be uh, to shy away from. That if we seek a, a deeper, more intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, He will not disappoint. Uh, he wants us along that path. And if these experiences are authentic, you will see that the love for God and love for neighbor play out in huge ways. Yeah. So that's a dead giveaway. Um, if you see the focus on a personality, as in a cult-like situation where it's um, all about uh, everybody's looking at this one person and you know they're kind of put up on the pillar, you better start re-looking at that, rethinking uh, what that's all about, because the focus should be on God. Yeah, and that is an important point of discernment, that we have to be sensitive to what's going on in our world today. There is so much deception, as we've seen in the last many weeks, uh, even in our, in our own country. There are so many uh, who, who claim to have a prophecy, claim to have a message. And, uh, in fact, if we look through the criteria, through the lens that Teresa's given us with great clarity uh, for those elements of humility, of love of God, of love of neighbor, of uh, a, a, a desire, frankly, uh, to not be forthcoming about these things in a very public way. Uh, we see that in the life of John. We see that in the life of Teresa and so many other saints, both Carmelite saints and others, uh, that, that the, the witness becomes clear and the criteria become clear for making a determination. One of the other things that Teresa says at, at this stage that I think is very important, we can begin to believe that we've now sort of reached, and she even says, this seventh dwelling is very much like heaven. And, and our readers and uh, readers of Teresa or our listeners may wonder, well, does that mean now that I walk around with my head sort of in the clouds and everything is easy? Yeah, life's easy and it's all daisies. <laughs> well, in fact, she tells us, uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. On the contrary, though, she says, the soul is much more occupied than before with everything pertaining to the service of God. And once its duties are over, it remains in that enjoyable company. But once its duties are over, she says, and I want to bring back in this theme that she brought up earlier around Martha and Mary, and this is the, the, the great lesson, I think, that Carmel has to teach for today, not just for uh, uh, Teresa's time and John's time and throughout the history of the great Carmelite saints, but so pertinent today is this idea, how do I combine this deep, intimate experience of our Lord and Savior through contemplative prayer with my everyday responsibilities. I, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a teacher, I'm a brother, I'm a, a worker, I have other commitments. And of course, we're going to learn more through some of the other saints how to bring uh, that presence of the Lord that is experienced here by Teresa in the seventh dwelling into the everyday work life. But Teresa would say to us, and has said in this book, this is exactly where Martha and Mary become one. The contemplative and the apostolic, that person that has to go out and and work in the world, come become one here. There is union of spirit, not just the union 
between our spirit and the spirit of God, spiritual marriage and spiritual union. But this union of the person, the person becomes a whole person again. We're not divided in our thinking. We're not divided in our affinities. We're not divided in our uh, devotions. We begin to combine Martha and Mary into one person. That's also part of the unity that's necessary. And I'm going to pick up on that butterfly that we talked about back in the Fifth Mansion where we had that prayer of union. You know, remember we talked about the cocoon and all the works and then the worm uh, is transformed into the butterfly and they're, le- they're transformed in Christ. But now here in Seventh, in this Seventh Mansion, they're living in the life of Christ. So it's not just like living in Christ, but living the life of Christ. So Christ lives and, and we die. We die in Christ. Uh, and then God is our strength, and uh, she goes on and talks about this much better than what I'm presenting here, so I suggest go back to reading it. But now, what's important here is that after entering Seventh Mansion, the Seventh Dwelling Place, there is the spiritual marriage. So it doesn't happen upon the entrance into Seventh, but it occurs after. And that spiritual marriage would usually occur um, with an imaginative vision of the humanity of Christ. And I think I remember her also getting, like, uh, given a nail, uh, whether that was a real physical nail or just the image of a nail, but, uh, you know, that that he would take on her life and she would take on his. And he says that you will be my bride. So um, if you want to read that whole account, which is so exciting to be able to read in Teresa's own words what her experiences of these things were like, you can go back and read it. And then, then she breaks out into prayer. And so that's wonderful to get into her prayer. And it's always in praise. Yeah, and she talks about, she distinguishes, and I, I want to make sure we do for our, our listeners, between these two uh, phenomenon of spiritual union and spiritual marriage. And she distinguishes by using uh, the, the betrothal language of her time. And she said it's like the distinction between betrothal and marriage. Once marriage has occurred here in, uh, actually it was late in six, early in seven, once the marriage has occurred, there's no break in the union. There's a continual presence. You know the Lord is present. Uh, and there'll be no more separation, if you will, from, from that experience. Uh, and that's what's occurred here in the Seventh. And that's very important Important that she draws that distinction for us. Right. So, so life is not easy, but, you know, there are trials. In fact, Teresa had great trials when she was at this point. Um, and yet, um, because you are living in the center of your being, Christ is, is your life then you you have a better command of handling these outward um, trials. Well, let's talk about that, actually. Uh, it's a good question, and she puts it to us, uh, this question. E- even here, is the soul assured of its salvation at this point? Is, this, is the soul completely assured of its salvation? I think in general, yes, but in she general, knows that there is an exception. I'm sorry to be so loud on this. In, in general, yes. What she says, um, with habitual pain and confusion at seeing the little it can do, the great deal to which it is obliged, this pain that she experiences uh, is a consequence of not being able to love enough. But even here, salvation is not assured. And the reason salvation is not assured, of course, is because the Lord wants us to deepen our experience of Him. And we and, have free will. And we have free will. We can certainly always make the turn if we... If we weaken enough, but the, the reality is the Lord wants to continually draw us into a deeper and, and more intimate relationship, and so even here, salvation is not necessarily assured, but she brings up another point. Is the chance of sin, 
uh, even mortal sin, is that still present at this stage? Yes. There are faults, which the soul is very distraught about. Venial sins, even more distraught about. But I would think mortal sin not. Yeah, it's interesting what she uses. She uses some very interesting terminology here, and I think it's important, especially in light of uh, our understanding through modern science and so forth. She says the the soul is not really subject to mortal sin, but it's not completely immune either. And I think a good analogy here is um, in attacking uh, uh, something that may have attacked the body. What we typically do, of course, is we... Uh, inject some element of that uh, potential infection, that antibody, in order to build up defenses against the potential that that might occur in the body, right? The, the body actually builds the defense. And I, I like the use of her word, the immune system, because I think what she's saying here is, yes, you could still commit mortal sin. Not very likely. Actually, as regards venial sin, she says not advertently. In right. other words, you wouldn't do it intentionally. Right, because since fourth man, yeah. you've been trying not to do that. Yeah, it would it would be uh, purely accidental. Somebody says something and you have a negative human reaction. That that might happen. But mortal sin, she says, it's not likely it's going to happen. I'm using my own terminology, but her terminology is, but you're not immune. And the reason, I think, for the absence of complete immunity from it is, that it allows us to continue to deepen our relationship still even more uh, because where our body is building up, if you will, its defense. And what's its defense? Love. Right. Love is that defense. And these trials continue because it's a great way for us to merit more, right, and to uh, work for the glory and honor of God. And that's our whole point. It's pleasing Him and loving Him. So, uh, you know, life isn't just heaven on earth as far as the exterior life appears but you definitely have heaven on earth interiorly. Well, and here's another point she brings out. Is there still pain and discomfort at this stage? Could we still have trial and tribulation at this stage? Now, we're in the seventh dwelling. We're in something akin to heaven. Is there still pain and discomfort here? Well, let's think about this. When Jesus cried at Lazarus' death, there was pain, there was suffering, so I would think so. There absolutely is, and in fact, she says, the reverse is true in that The pain here becomes pleasure in that we know it gives us the opportunity to serve the Lord in an even deeper way. So we experience the pain, but we are able to uh, bear that pain with great joy, even greater joy, because we know now we're serving the Master. I I, I know, Francis, we want to just cover quickly, uh, because I think it's important. Uh, Teresa gave us a great teaching using the Our Father and the Seven Dwellings. We've only got a couple minutes here, so I'm going to ask you to go very quickly. But take us through this explanation of how she built uh, a prayer uh, or a a correlation between the Our Father and the Seven Dwellings. Okay, I got this from an article by Tom Richards. So thank you, Tom, for this article. In the Our Father prayer, we're going to start with God and end up on earth, okay? So we start, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Think of this as Seventh Mansion the spiritual marriage, our destination on the journey, the intimacy, the oneness with the Trinity, the love, the communion, the consummation. The next phrase, thy kingdom come. That's the sixth mansion where the betrothal occurs. This is the fiat of Mary, the uh, experiences of profound suffering and joy in Christ, which results in increased attachment. Um, There's self-forgetfulness, but there's a great determination to do God's will in all things. We want his kingdom to come. Then the next phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This would be fifth mansion. This is the simple union. We're asking for God's will 
There's an urgent need to practice resignation to God's will in this new union, and you're practicing um, more fervently the love of God and neighbor. The desire is to praise God and suffer great trials and do great penances and be in solitude and want everyone to know God. Then we go on to the next one. Give us this day our daily bread with the fourth mansion. This is the spiritual delight or the infused recollection whether it's, um, and the prayer of quiet. And this is the first case of the supernatural prayer, the first mystical prayer. And here you are great need of the Eucharist, so we're not grown. Then forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Practicing forgiveness, that third mansion where you're longing not to offend the Lord and growing the right humility. And then lead us not into temptation would be the second mansion. This is an urgent need for protection against the subtleties of temptation, and we are in grave danger of mere occasions of sin. So perseverance is most necessary. And then the last phrase is the most earthly one, but deliver us from evil. The first mansion where our vocal prayers are, where the soul in this state is especially vulnerable and weak, and they have a unique and urgent need for deliverance and the intercession of our brother. Well, thank you, Francis. I realize that was rushed, but I think it's important that we uh, share that with our uh, with our listeners. I want to uh, thank all of our listeners for joining us, and I want to invite you again next week uh, to Carmelite Conversations. We're going to have a special guest, uh, another president of a, a secular order a community here in the Ohio area, who will be talking with us about uh, what it means to be a member of Secular Carmel. Uh, I, I want to thank you again for uh, taking this time with us over these last many weeks to go through the interior castles. And we're going to end with a glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Ever. Amen. Thank you, listeners. God bless.